Geordie. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. If you've ever fancied a trip to Hawaii, chances are you'll be thinking of flying. But our guest today rode all the way from California, 2,400 miles across the Pacific, with nothing but two friends and some oars. What's more, they broke records and came second in the Great Pacific Race. Megan has such wonderfully evocative stories about what it feels like to be in the middle of the ocean when your closest fellow humans are the ones passing over in the plain above, and also about her mountaineering in Nepal, Ecuador, and more. I'm delighted to welcome Megan Hoskin to the Big Travel Podcast. So I saw your lovely little film, and it was really inspirational, and your journey looked well, really challenging and life-changing in many ways. But you better tell me what you, who you are, and what you, your your journey was that we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, my name is Megan Hoskin, and together with my two crewmates, uh, Kaz Lander, a fellow woman from the UK, and Ellen Carey, an Australian woman, we rode for 62 days across the Pacific Ocean in the Great Pacific Race as the crew of Pacific Terrific. 2,400 miles across open ocean, no support, nothing out there to help us. And in arriving in Waikiki, we became the first crew of three male or female to row the Pacific and the youngest crew of three to row any ocean on Earth. So where did you leave from? So we left from Monterey in California. Felt like a long time before we arrived in Waikiki, Hawaii. And how long was it? 62 days, 18 hours and 36 minutes. 62 days, just the three of you on a on tiny a, little rowing boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Yes, a 24-foot ocean rowing boat, which is mostly open deck, uh, with just sort of pretty much a six-foot by three-foot cabin for, for shelter. It sounds terrifying. Yeah, that would be a word. At times, it, it could be terrifying, sort of setting out. None of us were particularly rowers, certainly not offshore rowers. Uh, none of us had any experience of being offshore uh, on the open ocean before that. So we had no idea what to expect. And we couldn't have imagined what we did experience out there. What sort of rowing experience had you had? <laughs> Very between the crew. Elle had done a small amount of flat water rowing before. Kaz had signed up to do the race. It was the Great Pacific Race was the name of the event. And then learnt to row. <laughs> and I have still yet never rowed anything except our ocean rowing boat. So we came in literally at the deep end and just threw ourselves at the challenge. And literally at the re- deep end, I see what you did there. What possessed you to do that? Oh, <laughs> it was a really good question. And, and who knows, having the opportunity and, and sort of just saying yes to it, really. Um, I think all of us in our different ways are sort of like physical challenges and for this it was very much the the mental challenge and seeing how far we can push ourselves and to what extremes and sort of knowing how we cope and survive in those situations so it really was just the size and the scale of the challenge and it being too good an opportunity to to turn down. How did you feel setting off from Monterey at first knowing (laughs) that you were heading off just the three of you to cross the whole Pacific? We felt absolutely elated. I look back at the footage of when we left and we were dancing and singing on the boat and, you know, the hype and the build up to this one moment of of setting off. But the race start was actually delayed for a couple of days due to weather. So we knew in setting off that uh, there would be all this elation and celebration and excitement, but that within a day or two, we'd be rowing into huge storms. So we knew that possibly the toughest conditions of our entire, we didn't know how long at sea, were going to hit us straight the moment that, that we got out there and we, we had no idea what to expect. So elation, trepidation and every emotion under the sun. The only the closest I've ever been to huge storms on a boat is probably crossing the channel uh, on a ferry. <laughs> what are these huge storms like in the middle of the Pacific? We had no idea what to expect. 
we never had and we who knows if we will again sort of be in those conditions but within a couple of days we were met by 30 foot waves uh, 35 plus knot winds we actually had to go onto our parachute anchor within a couple of days of the row along with the other crews in the race the the conditions were just too huge to to be able to safely row in what is Um, a parachute anchor a parachute anchor it's it's kind of like it's a massive underwater parachute the boat itself it's 24 foot ocean rowing boat it's mostly open deck but it's designed to self-right if it capsizes and things like that but you have virtually minimal maneuverability against the power of the waves and the winds and things you're at the ocean's mercy basically so the parachute anchor is deployed underwater and it basically just helps to keep to keep the boat uh, steady and facing the right way into the winds to minimize the risk of of rolling and, and being the wrong way up and is there a risk of rolling there is a very huge serious risk of rolling. Um, unfortunately, another one of the crews in the race did capsize um, and subsequently withdrew from, from the race a weekend. So we're very, very, very aware of the of the dangers of it. If you did capsize, what happened to the people that capsized? Because there's no one there with you. How would they know? How would you call for help? Yeah, so the, I mean, the biggest risk in ocean rowing is being separated from the boat. So at all times you're tied on, you're tethered on to the boat so that if you do end up in the water you, you're not separated there's no chance of maneuvering a boat in those conditions back to try to rescue someone so we we have safety devices on board we have epurbs and transponders and things to to be able to alert anybody if if the boat is in distress but the nearest help when you're 1200 miles from land there's no helicopters that can come to you your best chance of rescue or help is usually a passing container ship or whoever else is out there coming to your rescue did you see any passing container ships did you see any traffic on the Pacific? we we did we did and it was actually probably the biggest inherent risk of of the journey was in the middle of the night we had a, a sort of radar that would beep and let us know when something else was on a course uh, we couldn't get out the way of a massive 400 meter cargo ship we've got no chance of maneuvering so having to to call up these massive ships that would be on a direct approach to you and sort of calmly but firmly saying we're a tiny little speck on the ocean you can't see us but we're here please uh please change your course so you don't run over us and did you and how did you call them up what do you do over the radio so you'd yeah you'd have sort of fairly um panicked calls at times sort of trying to call these these massive you know goliath tankers out there i want to know what a call sounds like do you know the name of them is it like sort of you know hey we're here you know you with the big boat i can see you over there you're on the radar absolutely so yeah you'd be doing a standard call it'd be sort of like saying demeter leader demeter leader demeter leader this is ocean rowing boat danielle ocean rowing boat danielle and then sort of relaying your message. But uh, most of the time, they simply could not conceive that we were out there. And at one point, we saw a ship passing. We thought, it's safe distance, it's okay. Kaz and Al turned around, they were sort of slightly panicked, said, Meg, uh, you need to come out here. <laughs> and I looked, and a ship was on a direct course coming to investigate what we were, because they were certain that we could not deliberately be out there that we must be in distress and need rescuing. So it was lovely to know that they would come to our our help if we needed them, but it took a lot of persuading that actually, no, we were rowing to Hawaii. This was deliberate. We were very happy to be out there and we didn't need them to pick us up. Thank you very much. And did they come over or did you just manage to avert them before they came over? They they got to within 0.4 of a mile, which is far too close for comfort when, when you're that tiny ships, out there. Yeah. Yeah. And what did you do? Wave or speak to them on the radio? Or? Yeah, well, they gave us a call, call back on another channel on the radio afterwards and just asked so many questions and couldn't conceive that we were three women out on this yeah tiny little speck on the ocean on our own with no engines no sails no power just oars in our arms and yeah I can barely conceive it myself did you have those sort of like pinch me what the hell am I doing here moments 
uh, constantly, but in the best way, in the absolute best way, you know. I can't imagine I will ever see so many sunrises and sunsets and sort of, you know, changing sky and all the colours on the water and watching planets rise and set all night. And it's just, yeah, those were definitely pinch me moments. Describe to me the most serene moment like that, the sunsets, the stars. What does it look like? What does it feel like? Oh, it's overwhelming. You it will never, ever feel so small, but in a brilliant, brilliant way in, in your life. You know, at night we'd see we'd see planes flying overhead and you'd realise that they were the closest people, you know, on the planet to you because we rode through the night. So we rode three hours on, three hours off, 24 hours a day for 62 days. So you see every moment of day or night, you see every type of weather, you see, you know, huge storms, you see bright blue skies, you see the stars and the, the sky filled like the most amazing planetarium. You also have the blackest of nights where you can't see the waves coming. They just smash over you and, and there's nothing there. It's absolutely awe-inspiring. It's incredible. Were you scared at those big wave moments? Yeah, I, th- I think it would be crazy not to be. You just don't know. You don't know what it's going to do. And there's no way of stopping it. There's no getting off. You, you, you can't stop it. You have to ride with it. And I remember there was one time on a beautiful, clear day, but it was, it was so dramatic. It was so vivid. And the waves were huge and they were petrol blue coming at us and cresting like white crests. And you'd see these waves forming a mile or two off and know that they were rolling towards you. And sometimes you just didn't know what they were going to do, whether they were going to roll under the boat, smash over the top of the boat. But there was no way to stop it. You just got to ride with it and, and see what happens. To see a wave coming from two miles, that must be terrifying. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it could be. But you I, could go into the cabin, couldn't you? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that this was a, you know, a fail-safe option, but I, I remember from the little film I watched about you doing it that the, you can seal the cabin and just hope for the best <laughs> yeah you, you hope never to have to do that but um yeah so the cabins are completely airtight the boats are designed with two cabins at either end that are completely airtight and that's so that the boat can self-right hopefully in the event of a capsize so yeah you, we we didn't apart from the worst of storms where you prepare the boat and put out the parachute anchor and things and sort of go into the cabin and bunker down we had to bunker down for three days at the start of the race Nobody ever wants to be in an airtight six foot by three foot cabin with two other people. <laughs> Breathing is not easy. Yeah, well, that's um, it. I mean, your film, it's like you're actually, if you sleep all night, you're in danger of suffocation. You would wake up probably every hour and a half and be hyperventilating and, and sort of be really disorientated and thinking, you know, you're squished up, you've got your legs and your limbs propped in all parts of the cabin because you can't be straight. You don't, three people can't exist in that size of space. But you'd wonder what was going on and you'd realise that you've run out of air in the cabin. So you'd have to brave cracking the hatch and hope that a big wave didn't come through it, which did happen. You'd sometimes just get a massive yeah, raft of salt water coming, smacking you in the face and soaking everything. Is, is it dangerous? Like, you know, is there a real fear of suffocation if you stay in there too long? I think as we experience, your, your body kicks in and realises that you've got no oxygen left to breathe and sort of wakes you up and... And no amount of sleep deprivation and delirium <laughs> will override that, thankfully. God, that's really, that's another sort of fear that you, you know, you just wouldn't wake up, that you'd fall into a deep sleep. Yeah. I remember at one point you got to the centre of your journey. So is that the centre of the Pacific? Tell me about that. So it's the mid-Pacific that we rode. So from California to Hawaii, that distance 
is 2,400 miles. So at the midpoint, 1,200 miles in, that felt really good. But you're still in the middle of the ocean. You can't see anything. You can't, yeah. No, there's just nothing. There's nothing around you. But yeah, for us, that was the midway point. And it's, it's relentless and it's constant. And, you know, three hours on, three hours off. 24 hours a day for 62 days there's there's nothing to break that down apart from changes in the weather or ticking off the miles and so hitting that 1200 mile point it meant that we were no longer going out but we were actually then rowing to land although I don't think any of us really wanted to reach land we we loved it out there this is just it was just incredible and that comes across from the little film I saw is that you all seem to just love every minute did you all get on with the no <laughs> moments when you're thinking I'm stuck on a boat with you two for the next, you know, 30 more days. I've been here on, thir- on here 30 days with you. We've got 30 days left together. You're doing my head in. <laughs> I think there were so many factors that contributed to, to our dynamic. Most crews would spend usually two to three years preparing for a race like that. We had six months and six to eight weeks before the race start, an original crew member that we had for personal reasons dropped out. So we had to scour the earth, literally trying to find someone crazy and willing enough to say yes and sign up to come meet two other random women in California and jump on a boat for 62 days. And someone was crazy enough. Thank goodness Elle was that person. I guess by that point we knew each other well because of what you go through just to get to that point but we didn't know each other that well that we could have sort of niggles and things like that but the main thing for all of us our approach was not about wanting to be the fastest it wasn't about a focus on the world records it wasn't about winning the race even though Naturally, we're very competitive and driven, and but it was for our own personal challenge. So I think we were all coming at it from the point of a shared perspective on the personal challenge and on the journey and on, on the experience rather than let's just smash it out and get to <laughs> get to the other side of the ocean. But you did break some records, didn't you? We did break some records. Yeah, that was that was the cherry on top. That was incredible. We were the first the first crew of three male or female ever to row across the Pacific, which is such a yeah it's a real sort of privilege to to be able to do that and the youngest crew of three to row any ocean on earth on a practical sense I mean that's amazing but on a practical sense what are you eating what are you you know what I really thought about and maybe this is just too much information and I don't really want to know how did you go to the loo (laughs) that is the one that everybody always wants to know there's a phrase that says uh, bucket and chuck it oh no so yeah there is no room for being shy I spent two months with my pillow basically being my crewmate Elle's backside. You know, (laughs) we got very, very close because you have to. So, yeah, there's a bucket on deck. At the start of the race, you're kind of feeling a little bit like, oh, could you you look away? And uh, yeah, (laughs) by the end of it, someone will be sat there eating their ration pack and you'd be sat on the the bucket having a little chat. (laughs) And did you worry about like supplies, like running out and that sort of thing? Did you prepare for every eventuality you know there's so much training and so much preparation that goes into getting to that point the easy bit in a way is getting on the boat and rowing so we've gone to huge lengths to make sure that our nutrition that our our food we had to calculate the exact number of calories and make sure that we were well provisioned and the right number of days so we were really lucky we had some fantastic food on the boat which you know after after two months you, you get excited for maybe something new and a bit of variety at the halfway point we took a treat for ourselves which was tinned pineapple and a can of condensed milk and some miniature bottles of amaretto and you would never think that you could be so 
excited to see that particularly weird combination of treats. But uh, yeah, that that made our little party midway. That sounds good, actually. It's the sort of thing <laughs> I could have for breakfast. Maybe not the amaretto, not until about 10 a.m. <laughs> what, what to you was the real standout moment? When you look back on that time, what was the real standout moment? Oh, my gosh. I think there's no one moment. I think it's just the general sense of it. It's just an absolute privilege to be able to be somewhere so remote and to experience all of nature like that. You know, when are you ever so far from any form of light and you, there's nothing on the horizon? You know, you've got a full 360, a complete, you know, amphitheater of the ocean, of the sky, of everything. And I just can't imagine how or wherever else you could ever, ever experience that. So it was just a complete privilege to be so utterly immersed in the natural world out there. I've been reading Christopher Columbus with my six-year-old and, you know, just speaking, to, thinking about other great explorers. Did you have them in your mind? Did it cross your minds that people have done this before on galleons and not known when they're going and discovering new lands? Would that have occurred to you along the way? It really did to me, actually. Absolutely. I, I'm fascinated by kind of human history and exploration things and just wondering, you know, there's this, this thing of saying we're the first crew of three to row across the Pacific. But of course, so many journeys have been made before that we just don't know about. And I think it made me, you know, aside from the technology you have on the boat, you're very aware that this is, this is it raw, you know, it's not impacted by modern life and modern things. And yeah, it was just complete wonder and amazement at what other people in the past and historically would have experienced as well. DNA has told us, my dad got his DNA tested recently and he's from India. Well, actually he's, he's not, he's from Fiji, but all his blood is India because he was third generation of indentured labour uh, that were taken over to from India to Fiji and other places around the world by the British. And he found out that he has traces of Melanesian blood in him and Melanesian DNA. And that's because presumably people would have drifted up on some sort of boat device, you know, yeah. a rowing boat or something up from the Pacific Islands up towards India and beyond. So yeah. you're right, people have done this journey. Absolutely. But, you know, previously when it was undocumented and they were discovering new lands, which just seems incredible. I get, this is just completely unrelatable at all, but I get a similar feeling sometimes when I drive over a hell, the crest of a hill and like see London. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's Canary Wharf or something like that that <laughs> sticks out these days. But you think like on Shooter's Hill or something in South East London, you think years ago, people would have walked up here or rode up here on their horses and, and looked down on that very similar, you know, except for the skyscrapers and buildings yeah. view and almost that sort of sense of discovery. Yeah. And walking in other people's foot steps absolutely yeah I was personally very very aware of that and absolutely in awe of it um, okay, so I'm glad it's just not me that's a bit <laughs> weird uh, so what was it like when you finally when you saw land what was that like oh my gosh yeah it was it was pretty emotional I think we all felt sort of all that emotion kind of bubbling up there's this sort of relief of of kind of thinking wow you know you haven't seen land and who normally goes without seeing land, you know, for, for that period of time. And then there was kind of the sense of, oh my gosh, I think we might actually have, have done it. But we didn't want to count that until we got to the finish line. We didn't dare sort of think we've, we've done this. What do you mean to, to do um, it? To like complete it or to, to win or to... Just to, to complete just to do it. it. <laughs> just to, the focus for us, we, we actually, we did come second in the race, which was an incredible thing. But that was very much the byproduct. It was about completing the journey and what we set out to do. 
But then I think we all kind of got very nostalgic and just overwhelmed by the sense that this might be coming to an end and what had it meant and and yeah we we were all desperately looking forward I think to sort of stepping foot on land and eating different food and seeing loved ones or you know those creature comforts having a pillow maybe a bed having a leg straight toilet would be nice a toilet would be lovely being able to go for a walk that's more than two foot so what was it physically like were people waiting for you on the quay when you came in describe the moment to me when you arrived yeah it was absolutely brilliant so we arrived into the Waikiki Yacht Club we got to set off our flares and celebrate as we as we rode in uh, and yeah faces friendly faces family friends loved ones all there to sort of greet us and the hugest stack of fresh food which is what you're absolutely craving so it was yeah it was absolutely incredible but what was funny is that we expected there to be people out on the boats as we hit the official finish line which was partway between a lighthouse and a buoy out in the bay and we got closer and closer and there was there was no one there we thought hang on guys you've had 62 days notice you know we're coming <laughs> but we actually crossed the finish line completely on our own no pomp and circumstance none of that and actually that felt i think there were people out there that might have thought feel a bit robbed of an anticlimax yeah Yeah, it felt incredible it was perfect because we thought you know what no we've set out on this it's just the three of us and we finished it just the three of us and then we had everybody else come along and and celebrate with us so yeah you must really miss each other after all that because it's been such an intense (laughs) time it really has and it's that thing where we are incredibly lucky I think you know people have said to us that it's really quite rare that you would be able to get off of that boat and have strong positive relationships and friendships and camaraderie no doubt like it's something that's going to join us up for life yeah no nobody else will ever understand really as much as you'd love to try and explain so that's where we're really glad obviously to to be able to show the film and and you know incredible film that that jack tonkins has has put together yeah so Um, it's going into the four seasons film festival yes we are so excited about that do you have any more plans to do any more journeys like that together or challenges or races uh we all we're all people that will sort of never stop at that Kaz and Elle have both sort of undertaken big sort of sporting challenges and adventures and things before my background prior to this is in mountaineering and we've all got a massive love and appreciation for the ocean now and it's the kind of thing that I think is just going to keep calling us back you know the sirens call we'll sort of see how plans develop tell me about the mountaineering oh I've been so lucky for the last kind of decade or so and this is why being offshore was so out of my experience and my realm because for me being in the middle of the mountains being at the top of a peak that to me is sort of being, you know, remote and, and sort of isolated, but in the middle of nature and being completely overawed by it. So to remove all land and be in the ocean was, was absolutely crazy. But I've been really lucky to get to, to climb, you know, in the Andes, the Himalayas, Caucasus, the Alps and things. So I'll have more, more mountaineering trips lined up for sure as well. So, so tell me about, oh God, where, which, what's your favourite mountain? <laughs> What's my favourite mountain? Oh, but they're they're all so different. They're all so different. So I love being out in Nepal. I love being out in the Himalayas. It's the culture and, yeah, the people. And again, it's the idea of being able to be somewhere that it takes a lot of effort and a lot of grit and determination and the physical challenge of it, but obviously the, the mental challenge that it takes to keep yourself, whether it's taking, you know, another oar stroke after 486 million or keep putting one foot in front of the other. For me... What I love is knowing that that moment where you stop and you're somewhere incredible and somewhere beautiful, you can appreciate 
nature and the scene around you and know that you've had to work really hard to get there and then you just feel so lucky that you got to do that and then you've still got to get down yes <laughs> yeah always learn that yeah the the summit is only halfway i used to love climbing trees when i was a kid i've never climbed any mountains but i used to love climbing trees but it, then you'd be at the top and think this is amazing it's like oh my god how do i get down <laughs> yeah absolutely coming down is usually usually worse or harder than going up a few weeks ago i had levison woods on the podcast oh, and one of the questions that listeners asked of him was on his adventures what has been his favorite view so i'm going to ask you now describe to me the most incredible view you've seen on your mountaineering journeys oh my gosh I have a great knack for bringing sort of whiteouts and snowstorms with me wherever I go so quite often I'll find myself having spent 16 hours on a summit bid to get to the top and see absolutely nothing at all just complete white total whiteout all around you but that actually doesn't diminish it or detract from it but one of the biggest motivations in me when I'm climbing up anything you have to break it down you know when you're looking at 16 20 hours plus of a constant constant physical challenge and trudging in an altitude where your breathing is difficult and things like that you've got to break it down somehow on the row it was breaking it down into our three-hour shifts and on a on a mountain I'd be looking for the next point the next something looking for the next corner and wondering what's around it but what's really important is knowing that when you get there, there might be absolutely nothing around the corner at all. But then you fix on the next point and you work towards that. And for the one time in 10 that you round a corner and you get the most incredible panorama, it's all worth it. Has there really been any time when you felt in danger, like your life has been in danger? Yes, I think that's, yeah, it's definitely something that, that I've kind of learned to really respect every environment that I'm in. I had a difficult climb that should have been very straightforward when I was in Ecuador. And I was also in Nepal in 2015 when the earthquake happened out in the mountains there. We were really, really lucky, but you, you sort of take the, the positives from it. You take it as a learning experience and certainly in the case of Nepal, you just learn to have a huge amount of respect for your environment, but also the positive reaffirmation of everybody there and how everybody pulled together and just seeing that kind of spirit and teamwork and resilience and everything in action is is absolutely awe-inspiring. You sort of take that forwards into, into everything that you do. So I think all those experiences really help to kind of build resilience and just a kind of attitude that I guess like in the row enables you to at times feel very scared but know what you need to do to get through that and 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 carry on. What happened when the earthquake hit? Where were you? We'd been climbing a mountain called uh, Mira Peak and so we were on our return back into Lukla, sort of the gateway into into that part of the Himalayas and yeah the earth moved and a huge slab of slab of the sort of you know hillside that we'd been climbing up fell off but we're very isolated. We were in no communication with anybody else out there. So we were totally unaware of the magnitude of everything until we got back into Lukla and the sort of epicentre there and became aware of just how incredibly fortunate we were and just what, what sort of had, had happened. We were incredibly fortunate and, and, and lucky and obviously in Lukla keen to do whatever it was that we could to support the whole community there. So when you got to the community, what sort of what did you find? Lots of people sort of trickling in from different parts of the mountains. So um, you know, and yeah, it just makes you realise how very, very, very lucky you are. And obviously, it's sort of devastating to to see. But again, you sort of have to try to take the positive learnings from it and and do whatever you can, but have that pay forward in some way. Um, so take that experience forward in a positive way into 
everything else that you do afterwards. So where else is stood out in terms, you mentioned Ecuador, what happened in Ecuador? Yeah, in, uh, in Ecuador, I was climbing a mountain called Cotopaxi then, and that was a case of being in a complete whiteout and, and sort of trundling up a hill and kind of thinking, oh, this is fine. And, you know, before I learned that the summit was only halfway, getting to a summit, turning around, coming back down, taking a slide, finding yourself suddenly in what goes very, very, very quickly out in nature. You realise the power of it from a very straightforward situation into a, a frankly quite terrifying one. What happened then? Just just slipped coming down, couldn't see the path, well, I say path, couldn't see the footsteps in the snow that you'd made coming back up. Slid down, you're roped up with two other people, uh, including our guide, and then seeing those people sliding past you uh, and realise that nothing is going to stop this slide down the sort of infinite expanse of mountain below you. So you have to self-arrest with an ice axe and then try to... We ended up doing something like front pointing down a mountain, which you would normally expect to kind of walk down in your crampons. But instead, we ended up sort of rather more technically climbing down it, which was a new experience. <laughs> yeah. But you got out. We did. We were very happy to, to get out. My last question is always about music, because I think a lot of people listen to music when they're traveling and it helps evoke and cement beautiful traveling memories. If you had to choose one song from a place of time, of travel, a memorable place and time of travel, what would that one song be? <laughs> wow, that's asking me a big question. I actually I have a degree in world music. Do um, you? A degree in world music? So music, that's amazing. Music is intrinsically intertwined into everything that I do. It's, yeah, it's, it is, I think life has a soundtrack to it, a Absolutely. constant soundtrack. And again, one song, one song. It doesn't have to be your favourite song in the world. And a lot of time, we had a, man, a mountaineer, Molly Hughes, on, and she chose yeah. Britney Spears because they ended up <laughs> listening to that the, almost at the peak of Everest. Yeah. So when I'm climbing something, horrifically, I constantly in my head have the song In the Jungle. <laughs> Because what, I like think the lion sleeps tonight. The one. lion sleeps tonight because I think it's the absolute opposite of what I'm doing. Usually it's two o'clock in the morning, pitch black. I'm in ice and snow, freezing cold, <laughs> wearing a load of down gear, and I just have a wind away <laughs> on a loop in my head, and on, it's like meditative somehow and really irritating. But then on the ocean, cheesy and corny and terrible as it sounds. We played a lot of Moana, how far I'll go. Did you? Oh, that's so suitable. I love Moana. Oh, that's brilliant. I can just see you up the mountain, you know, a Wimba weighing or whatever it is. It's obscure. Oh, so what journeys have you got planned now? So many, so many dreams and ideas. Yeah, the list of bigger expeditions on the oceans and the mountains is constantly there. So I would love to get out into sort of some of the real wildernesses. So I'd love to be out on the ice and snow pulling a polk. I'd love to do a big crossing of, you know, wherever it is. Antarctica I, or something. Oh my gosh, it would be an absolute dream to get out into those regions. There are mountains like Denali that I'm desperate to go and climb someday. There are mountains sort of closer to home in, you know, in Chamonix, but more more technical mountains and things that, that I'd love to get out and climb. For me, I just have to know that I'm going to be outdoors and immersed back in that environment again um, sometime soon. That's what motivates me. Thank you so much, Megan, and thank you for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. I don't want to count any chickens before interviews are in the bag, but next week I hopefully have John Simpson lined up. John is one of my dream interviewees of all time, so I'm nervous that it might not come off, but I'm really hopeful that it will. So watch this space. See you then.